0: Um, is this on? yeah, there we go. I know that uh, last week I was talking about how mark 's gospel is one of action it's it's fast moving there's there's just a lot of immediacy and a lot of uh, a lot of things happening and, and i i didn 't realize that uh, our first Sunday. Really delving into the first part of Mark would actually be a Sunday filled with action, uh, as we've already begun, with uh, a confirmation, and then afterwards we're going to celebrate communion. This is a, a very heavy load week, and I'm sure most of you are praying that, likewise, the sermon would be like the gospel in terms of its brevity and shortness. and we'll see if your prayers are answered. Um, If you will, turn in your pew Bibles to page 994, as we read uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, again page 994, Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, in our minds, in drawing him to uh, himself, to you, to the Holy Spirit. And, Father, we uh, are so grateful that you've put us into a community together, that we can celebrate these good things together like confirmation. We can celebrate baptism. We can celebrate uh, this Lord's Supper as we will celebrate later. Father, we are grateful that not only have you drawn us to yourself, but again, you've drawn us into a community, and so we can pray for one another. And so we do pray for Jason and Angela as they take Catherine up to university. Father, we think of the many who are uh, doing likewise in the coming days and perhaps have already done so. Father, we do pray for these university students uh, as they face uh, an onslaught on, uh, on the mind, Father, that you would protect them. Father, that you would put them in good community where your word is preached and where they can come together with fellow believers, building their confidence in you and who you are and what you have done and what you will, are yet to do. And so, Father, we celebrate these things and we lift this up to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've done any yard work in your lives, and some of you look like maybe you haven't done some yard work, <laughs> uh, you understand the need for preparing soil uh, before you plant seeds. If you, want, uh, if you want there to be growth and development for plants that you need to till and you need to work and you need to break up, hard ground and compacted soil now what has made that soil hard well weather and perhaps uh, traversing over land or driving vehicles over land has has compacted that earth uh, to where it's almost like a brick it's very solid it makes it very difficult for oxygen for for water to make deep penetration into the earth To get down into the soil. And so it needs to be loosened. It needs to be broken up uh, in order for those things to take place, if the soil will bear any fruit. The same can be said of the human heart. People need to have their, their hearts and their minds tilled, so to speak. To break up uh, unhelpful and negative patterns that, that, that are existing in their lives. Sometimes we are aware of these things, and other times we need to be made aware of these things. And this is really where Mark begins his gospel. Right in the middle of action, the, the, the story picks up straight away, and the picture is drawn for us, and it, and it is a picture of preparation. There was a need for for people's hearts and minds to be prepared for what was about to come. Now, preparation means uh, removing uh, obstructions. We get this from Isaiah chapter 57, verse 14, where it says, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Even in the service this morning, there was a, a preparing of our, of our hearts and our minds, was there not? And, and, and if you come early enough, you actually get a, a little bit of a bonus preparation. And you can hear Marcos playing piano or one of the other musicians playing an instrument. And there's this, there's this allotted time where you can sit and contemplate and reflect uh, it's this beautiful musical interlude. Occasionally we'll, we'll put scriptures on the screen. If you can't tell, I'm trying to sell you on coming early to church. <laughs> or at least on time. Uh, <clears throat> but you see, what that preparation does is it orientates our minds. It, it, it helps us think about things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely. It's, it's setting the Lord in a, in a right position for us mentally. It, it's preparing our minds for who he is. It, it, it's helping us recognize that he is the object of our worship. And it's helping us r- remove those those obstacles that stand in our way as we want and desire to worship. And then we have this opportunity to, as we've just done, we, we, we sing to one another, we sing to the Lord, and we sing to one another, and we're reminding each other of the truths that you know. Even just think of the last song we sang—that it that it's not about us and our works and our own righteousness, but it's it's Christ in us that's doing good works, that's that's accomplishing what He's set out to do. And then we have recitation of of, of creeds and and confessions. These are all, again, preparation for our mind and our hearts as we seek to align them with the will of God. And we set aside and we, and we remove the, the, the false beliefs and the false uh, mental patterns that have, have infiltrated our minds. The thing is that the enemy wants us to believe. And so we have to sing these truths and, and recite these truths to, to break those things down, to, to unshackle ourselves from perhaps what has begun to seep in. And we're recalling what, what God has done. We're, we're remembering that it, again, is not by our works, but it is by grace that we are saved, and it is by grace that we are preserved, and then we get this opportunity to, to sit together under the, the preaching of the word of God. And we hear about what God is telling us. And we, and we hear about what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. And how our lives are actually brought into that story. It's all building and, and, and it's serving this body corporately together. And it's removing those obstacles that hinder us. That's all preparation. And that is Mark's theme in the first eight verses or so of chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that opening line just... In passing, is, is really a dig, is Mark's dig. Again, remember, Mark is writing to a Roman audience. That's a real dig to Caesar. You know, Caesar's self described themselves as the Son of God or the sons of God. And so for him, he's saying this gospel, this announcement, this good news that Jesus Christ is the son of God this is the beginning of his story the, the the story that matters well today we're looking at three areas of preparation from our passage we're looking at the preparer prophesied we're looking at the preparer's appearance and we're looking at the preparer's words the preparer prophesied who is this preparer who is he It's John the Baptizer. I know we have a habit of calling him the Baptist, but Scripture does call him both. Uh, And I think uh, so that we don't confuse him with uh, a denomination, uh, and especially in light of our confirmation service that we just had uh, and celebrated with Catherine, we will refer to him as John the Baptizer. And I'm aware that most of you Baptists were very confused by everything that took place uh, at the beginning of the service, Uh, so just... I'm proud of you for hanging in there with us Anglicans. Uh, But again, he's John the Baptizer because it's what he did, not who he was. Now, we know, of course, from Scripture that Jesus was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. But even John was prophesied as well. And that's where Mark starts us. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah Behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight Now the the primary quotation in those in that quote is from Isaiah but that first line is really a quote from Malachi and the reason Mark writes down Uh, in Isaiah is because he's drawing our attention to the Isaiah passage. Some will make the argument that it's because Isaiah is the greater of the prophets, and so he is getting the distinction of in Isaiah. But we read that first part from Malachi in chapter 3, verse 1, and if you have your pew Bible and want to turn to it, it's page 954. And the the whole quotation from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The Lord says... Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, what's happening in this passage? There's a lot of of sort of uh, descriptors flying around here. Now, it was a practice in the ancient Near East to send messengers in advance of a visiting king to announce his arrival, to announce his coming, and to remove all the hindrances and the obstacles, as we talked about. And this prophetic messenger will be the last of his kind to appear before the coming of the Lord, who is the messenger of the covenant. Now there's a distinction between my messenger in the first part of verse one, the messenger and the messenger of the covenant, which comes later in verse one. That first messenger is a, is a messenger of preparation. He 's a messenger who prepares the way for the second. Then we turn to Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, and we read, "A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare." The way of the Lord makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, many prophets in the Old Testament, of course, uh, would have done this. You have Isaiah, you have Moses, but in the, the, the consummating fulfillment, you know, it's like we've been stair-stepping our way, waiting for who's this final one who's going to come, right? Who's the final one who's going to really make the path straight for the Lord himself, and it's, it's this consummating fulfillment is in our passage this morning in Mark's gospel. And it is John the baptizer. Now, what, what do they mean by this wilderness and, and this desert language that's used here in Isaiah? What, what is its significance? Well, from the Isaiah passage, these are, these are metaphors for, for alienation. These are metaphors for, for anguish. It is God alone who can, who can transform a desert into a, a flowering oasis, a metaphor for the, for the fullness uh, and joy of his salvation. They're also to remind Israel in, in Isaiah's day of God's faith, faithfulness to them in the first exodus. Now, in the Mark passage, John is actually physically preaching in the wilderness, And it's symbolically reminding Israel of her covenantal origins in the exodus. The wilderness is the traditional meeting place between God and his people. It also introduces this powerful image for us, which is this word we use, repentance. Repentance. The concept of repentance was was deeply rooted in, in wilderness tradition. One scholar writes, The summons to be baptized in the Jordan meant that Israel must come once more to the wilderness. As Israel long ago had been separated from Egypt by a pilgrimage through the waters of the Red Sea, the nation is exhorted again to experience separation. The people are called to a second exodus, which is a theme in Mark's gospel a second exodus in preparation for the new covenant with God. Both John's call to repentance and his baptism are intelligible as aspects of the prophetic tradition which expected the final salvation of God to be unveiled in the wilderness. The Jews knew why they were going out to the wilderness for John's baptism They recognized that symbolism and that significance. Mark chapter 1 verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea And all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It's the picture of what God was doing with the Israelites uh, under Moses in the wilderness. He's he's leading them. And even though their hearts keep leading them astray, they want to go back to Egypt. Uh, They just want to die He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to a spirit of repentance. This is the message of John the baptizer. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For the messenger of the covenant is coming and is here. This is so remarkable that not only was there prophecy of of christ and 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 who he was and what he would do Uh, not only that there's like 300 of those uh, in scripture but there are even prophecies about the one who will come before to prepare the way it's hard when i hear people who look at the bible and say you know I, i just don't believe what it says mostly because it goes against what the culture says about particular things or because of what it says about God's righteous wrath against sin and those who oppose God. But the Bible is filled with so much evidence that is so wonderfully fulfilled in these prophetic passages from hundreds and even thousands of years before their fulfillment And it's such a shame that people will ignore that because of self-interest. But we have been given this word that has lived up to all that it has promised. And we can trust it. It's like the Native American man who was traveling just in the day you know years after the revolutionary war and he's traveling from western settlement to western settlement and he's begging for food because he has no job and he he's just struggling and he's just relying on on the grace of people the generosity of people and finally someone notices that there's a bright ribbon around his neck with a little pouch hanging off of it and they said what is that and he says, well, this is a, a charm that I received uh, years ago when I was young. And, and he pulls it out, and there's a little piece of paper that he pulls out, and this greasy piece of paper, it was a, uh, a discharge from the federal army, and it was entitling him to a pension for life. And it was signed by General Washington himself. Let us not miss out on the promises of God. The prophecy of the preparer. Second, the preparer's appearance, verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. It's a vivid description, is it not? Now tell me, if Mark's gospel is one of action, and movement, and progress, and uh, it's, it's the go gospel, right? It's just, it's storming out of the gates, and it's just immediately, 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 and and is constantly in there, and it's just boom, 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 boom. Why would Mark take the time to describe the appearance of John? Is it just because he's got a unique and strange look, and, and he eats strange things, I think the point is, knowing how quickly this is progressing, we, we need to stop and slow down when he stops and slows down. It must have more significance than it does. You see, the camel's hair, uh, clothing, and the leather belt are to remind the Jews of another prophet, is to remind them of Elijah who wore the exact same thing. And we read that in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Elijah wore a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. He, he's a prophet. And what was the role of a prophet? To call God's people to repentance. This is the final voice calling out before the Lord comes to inaugurate his kingdom. But before the Holy Spirit comes uh, at Pentecost, before the Christ begins his earthly ministry, but what is the importance of what he ate? Is it simply again to, to show that maybe John lived off the land, that he was obeying the, the dietary requirements, why is this in here? I think it's in here because there are two very different image concepts that are portrayed in this. So we ask the first question, why locusts? And we have to think of our Old Testament knowledge here. Think about passages and stories in the Old Testament where where locusts are present. We think of the plague in Egypt, right, during the Exodus. It's a representation of judgment, in the book of Joel God says if the people are to repent and turn back to him he will restore the year of the swarming locus, that the swarming locusts have eaten Again locusts are symbolic of judgment okay but what about honey Again to the Exodus he promised a land flowing with milk and honey, it's symbolic of of provision. It's symbolic of goodness. It is the opposite of judgment. It is symbolic of of promise and fulfillment. So, the eating of the locusts and the honey was was this memorable, uh, prophetic object lesson to to visually ram home the, the, the twin images of judgment and salvation. It's the two paths at, at, the, at the end of the decision that one will make in regards to the gospel that is coming. But for now, it's a time to hear the prophet and repent in preparation for the coming of the Lord. Well, the prophecy of the prepare, the preparer's appearance, and finally the preparer's message or words, verses seven and eight. And he preached, saying, "After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit." What is John's message? One who is greater than me is coming. From prophecy, it is the Lord who comes. It is is this messenger of the covenant that we read about in Malachi. One of such high standing and, and one of such honor and glory that John says he is unworthy not just to untie his sandals which is an extremely low position, but this one is so high and mighty that John is not even worthy enough for the lowest position. And yet, as we saw last week, or if you weren't with us, it's this paradox that's throughout scripture. You would assume one who is this high and mighty and lofty would come and just, you know, the train of his robe would be flowing out the back and he'd be riding a a white stallion and he would have an army of soldiers with him and everything he said would just happen and, and, and it would just be power and majesty just exuding from him, it be coming out of his pores. And yet we don't see that in Christ. We see one who, 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 who submits himself One who washes the feet of his own disciples. He comes to baptize not with water, as John does, symbolizing again this washing of sin, but he comes with power and authority, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. The new covenant brings renewal to the people of God. As we read in Jeremiah 31 of God writing his law on our hearts. Or, or as we read in Ezekiel 37 where he will put in us his spirit. And this is done through the Son and the Spirit. John's baptism was, it, it was an external It was an external baptism. Jesus' baptism will be an internal baptism. When you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, and I'm not talking about the special additional baptism that that some people think you need, but I'm merely distinguishing between John's baptism with water and and Jesus' baptism. But when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, it's that he permeates every part of us. And it's real. It's not just symbolic. It's, it's not just a, a symbolism. It is a very real thing. Well, what do we make of all this? We've not even met Jesus in this gospel yet, and yet it's already spectacular. This is just the preparation. This is just the preparing. You see, you see, John is drawing his listeners. He's drawing us to repentance. But repentance alone does not save. There is this infinite chasm between the holy and righteous God and the wicked, fallen man humanity. And while repentance prepares the way, It removes the obstacles. The question is, how do we bridge the gap? Man has tried everything to bridge the gap, and it has gotten him nowhere. Law, works, outward righteousness, none of it will get you there. The gap has to be filled by God himself, which will be the work of Christ. And John invites all people to come in, even Jews who perhaps thought that they would uh, inherit the kingdom because they had the right birthright, because they were part of the people of God, that that would be their ticket to the kingdom of God. When John is calling on all to repentance, some estimate up to 300,000 people came out for John's baptism from all walks of life, rich and poor and men and women and slave and free. But John's point is that he can only splash some water on them. He, he can only take them so far. There was a world of difference between water and the Holy Spirit. John showed people their their natural hearts. Jesus gives people new hearts. John brought people to the Jordan, the the river of death. Jesus brings them to the river of life. This is the gospel of the Savior. The one who is greater than any Caesar or or king or, or government the one who was promised, the one who will bring the Spirit, the one whose message is not just repentance, but of welcome into the kingdom for those whose hearts have been tilled and broken up and receive the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now we celebrate together That good news in the partaking of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Remembering not only Jesus' earthly ministry, but also his atoning death on our behalf. Taking the cup of God's wrath and, and drinking it to the dregs. So that you and I can come and take part In a different cup, in the cup of his fellowship. And so this morning we are blessed and honored to take part in this Lord's Supper together. Hear these words. All glory to you, our Heavenly Father, for in your tender mercy... You gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death on the cross for our redemption. Who made thereby his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And who instituted and in his holy gospel commanded us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us Merciful Father, and grant that we who receive these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. Who on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given you thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the supper, he took the cup, and when he had given you thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you, and for many, for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Amen. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together.